Beloved, we continue our series this summer in 1 Thessalonians called Advancing Grace. We'll try to finish chapter 1. Our text then is 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I am always intrigued when I visit somebody's house and we're standing in front of their garden, which is vibrant, flourishing, bursting with either color or fruit. So I can't help but ask, what do you do to bring forth such lush produce? Uh, do you prepare the soil in a special way? Is it a, a fertilizer that you like to, leave, to use? Is there a, a secret watering method to bring forth such a lush garden? The church in Thessalonica is a lush spiritual garden. According to verse 3, it is bursting with the spiritual fruits of faith, hope, and love. And according to what I just read, this church is like top of the class in making Jesus known in their evangelism. This is exactly what we want for Redeemer, don't we? Don't we want Redeemer in Louisville to be known as a lush garden where grace is producing an abundance of faith, hope, and love and a witness to Jesus? Yes. So we have to wonder, what is it the Lord uses to produce such a lively, fruitful, lush church? Here's the answer. When the grace of God advances to produce a vibrant church, God uses, number one, the quality of the human instrument. Notice how Paul reminds them of how he arrived in Thessalonica with the gospel, verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. He's saying, remember guys, when we first met you, what we were like. What impact did we have upon you? 
Let me propose that there are two principles embedded in this one verse. So let's tease it out. First principle, you can't separate the message from the messenger. Can't separate what is said from the person who says it. Paul writes, you know what kind of men we proved be among you for your sake. So thinking about the verb prove, what was it that their conduct proved? Answer, their confession. It wasn't long, uh, assumedly, after these brothers and sisters, likely first in the synagogue and beyond that in the streets and marketplace and coffee shops, that they said to Paul, Silas, and Timothy, tell us about yourselves, they would have said, we are the Lord's precious possession. We're trophies of the grace of Jesus. We belong to the Lord. He has claimed us. He's worked the miracle of faith and trust in our hearts. We have called upon the Lord as our Lord and Savior. That was their confession. Men under the power of the Spirit of God living resurrection power before their eyes. That was their confession. So consequently, they proved to be men who were intoxicated with the grace of Jesus their hearts captivated by the love of Jesus, and their souls smitten by the beauty of Jesus, so they actually acted like Jesus. <laughs> That's what they looked like. Paul strove for the overflow. He wanted the reality of the life of Jesus in him by the Spirit to come out and show on the outside. It's, it's evangelism 101. You can't separate the message from the messenger. And I can tell you by personal experience, one of the things I most disdain about myself is when there's dissonance between who I am as a Christian and the way I act. It's like you're, like you're, you're trying to get somewhere and there's a slow person in the left lane and you, you, you're like, you like, Ugh! you finally pull around them, and I'm one of these guys tempted to do this. What is wrong with you? <laughs> and they go, uh, You're a Christian? <laughs> I disdain discontinuity in myself between the messenger and the message. After all, where do we see that preeminently displayed? the glory of Christ. There was never a difference, never a variance, never a departing from who Jesus was and everything he said and did. Jesus is fully God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everyone witnessing everything, the complete way Jesus did, lived, everything he did and said, that's God. And Jesus is fully human. Everything Jesus did and said comported with the way God designed human beings to, to live. He flawlessly reflected the glory of the righteousness of God. So it's summed up for us in John 8, 29, where Jesus said, I always do the things that please my Father. He obeyed his Father perfectly because he was God. 
He revealed the beauty of true humanity because he was man. I always do the things that please my Father. So if you ran into Jesus on the streets and you asked Jesus, tell me about yourself, he would say, I am living flawlessly among you. I'm revealing to you the glory of God and the perfection of true humanity, the beauty of holiness, the wonder, the glory of human righteousness, strength with conviction, tenderness, compassion, wisdom, rebuke when necessary. So in his ministry, when Jesus sees human beings burdened under the fall, the weight of the brokenness of life, he restores it because he's so utterly committed to the wonder and beauty of humanity. He was full of grace and truth. And beloved, Paul's point seems to be just as Jesus lived a life for the sake of others. Servant par excellence, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. Everything Jesus did was as a servant preeminently displayed in John 13 when he got on his knees, took a towel around his waist, and washed the disciples' feet. Jesus lived for the sake of others, ultimately giving himself away for the sake of others on the cross. Paul says, look at the last three words of verse 5, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Do you see that is the language of a servant? It's servant language. And I want you to appreciate Paul's logic here. It's pretty simple. I've more or less said it, but let me state it clearly. Paul's logic is this to the Thessalonians. We care, first and foremost, passionately about Jesus Christ. We want him known. We love his loveliness. We want you to love his loveliness. We want your life to reflect his glory so that in everything you do, Thessalonians, everything you do, Redeemer, brings glory and honor to God. But when he got to Thessalonica, nobody there knew Jesus, so their first encounter with Jesus Christ was with Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They're to see Christ embodied in the lives of these men. So let me ask you this question. When is it most difficult for you to be a for-your-sake kind of person. How'd you do this week? Did you live a life of for-your-sake? Boys and girls with your brothers and sisters, or are you quick to steal that extra donut on the table when they weren't looking? Did you offer to help mom and dad with housework around the, uh, around the house because for their, their sake it would help them? Husbands, wives, were you a, were you a for-your-sake kind of person? Here's a Here's when it's difficult for me to be that kind of person. First of all, when I'm driven, when I'm on task, when I need to accomplish something, when there's a goal and I'm like, <laughs> you're going to get lost in the jet wash. Very hard for me to be a for your sake person when I'm on task. Secondly, when I think I'm right, I'm convinced I'm right. I'm likely to miss you as a person. Thirdly, when people irritate me by their behavior or their beliefs, it's really, really challenging for me to be a for-your-sake kind of person. And probably we could all relate to this. If you're suffering, isn't it challenging to be a for-your-sake kind of person? How about Paul? Did his suffering excuse him? Apparently not. Look at verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction 
and with joy in the Holy Spirit. He's giving them a one-sentence history lesson recalling how he arrived in Thessalonica. He came from Philippi. You know how he left Philippi? Philippi? They beat the stuffing out of him with rods. Go into chapter 2. He alludes to it there. Read in Acts 16. They literally beat Paul with rods. Think about that. You're on the ground. Your head's covered. They're beating you. Paul gets up for the gospel's sake, makes a beeline to Thessalonica. So he arrives in town, welts, bruises, sores, cuts. He is in a, he, a world of trouble physically. And he shows up with joy in the Holy Spirit. And the believers, uh, the, the people, the, the uh, Thessalonians become believers on the basis of his testimony. And they suffer the same. He's saying, don't you? You suffered the same persecution with joy. I hope you're wondering, maybe you, you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not sure you believe in God. And you should be wondering this. What in the world would I sign up for that? An almost certain persecution? I, who here wants to get beaten with rods as soon as they leave here because they love Jesus? None of us. That's a fair question. What was it? What triumphs over our otherwise human disdain for suffering that produced joy in them? Obviously, a Holy Spirit deeply wrought conviction in their hearts that because I am one with Christ and he suffered for me, I can suffer for him. A Holy Spirit wrought conviction that God is absolutely in control of these sufferings. A Holy Spirit wrought conviction that God is not abandoning me. A Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit wrought conviction, which is a grace to see that when people hate the message, they'll shoot the messenger. I don't know. We could talk more about that. Let me get on to the second principle. We're asking what question. When grace advances, what does the Lord use to produce a flourishing, vibrant, healthy church? He uses the human instrument. You can't separate the message from the messenger. And secondly, in the human instrument, you can't give away what you don't have. Look at verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So you got to wonder, what did Paul and Timothy and Silas have that oozed out of them that was very compelling? As Murray prayed, may our neighbors know we are Christians by our love. What did they have that oozed out of them that was very compelling, that was joined to the message of the gospel, that proved the message of the gospel, that validated the reality of the claim we belong to a God of love? What did they have? They had a grace-produced conviction about Jesus. See, it's one thing for me to hold up a picture of a fire and tell you about it. It's another thing for you to experience the power, the heat, the smell, and the reality of the fire. So for these men, Jesus was not a picture. It was a fire that burned in their souls produced by the gospel. And the light of that fire shined on what in particular? The cross the cross of Jesus. In first century Palestine, no doubt, hundreds of men were crucified on wooden crosses by the Romans. 
And to the undiscerning eye, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, looked like any of those other men. But take the light of the word of God and let it shine. Let it shine till the fire is lit. Let it shine. This man was different. He's totally righteous as the thief next to him recognized. He's done nothing wrong. This man is not a man. He is the God-man, God in the flesh. As the centurion standing there said, surely he's the son of God. Let the light shine. This horrible death is a sacrifice in your place. Jesus taking the wrath your sins deserved. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Let the light keep shining in love. He has taken the hell your sins earned to earn for you in eternity you could never earn for yourself. Let the light keep shining. See the blood carrying away all of your sins. All of your sins. The blood washing away all of your sins. Let the light keep shining. What mercy. I'm not getting what I deserve. What grace. I'm getting a life I don't deserve. Let the light shine. That cross is empty. He was placed in a tomb. The tomb is empty. Let the light shine. This man conquered the grave, guaranteeing that if you trust in him, you will forever live in a glorified body in paradise. Do you see my point? If you would say honestly this morning, I don't feel much of a fire in my belly for God, then you need to keep Looking at the cross, keep looking at Jesus, bow before it, see him suffering for you until the fire starts burning. What does God use as, he, as grace advances and he creates a vibrant church? The quality of the human instrument and secondly, the liveliness of the grace message. Grace is not static. It is very lively. When grace invades a human heart, it unlocks the lips. Look, we're all like this, whether you're religious or not. When when you hear about something good, found this shortcut around I-64. There's this great restaurant. Um, uh, Have you seen that Netflix special about? You want to tell people something that's been beneficial to you. Verse 8. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The Thessalonians put Paul out of the evangelism business. And he couldn't be more happy. This verb sounded forth. It was used in the ancient culture for the echoing of thunder and the blast of a trumpet. The echoing of thunder and the blast of a trumpet. That means their preaching Jesus was as unmistakable as thunder and as clear as a trumpet. Now, both of those things are loud. Do you think that means they were shouting at people? So how many of you like to be shouted at in any circumstance? Yeah, no. It's very doubtful they went about shouting at people. The point is, their preaching sounded forth. It was as unmistakable as thunder, as clear as trumpet. What Paul is saying is, it is clear they believed it, and what they believed was clear. So let's unpack that. It's clear they believed it. Now, just because the apostles believed this did not make it true. People believe all kinds of things that aren't true. 
what makes something true is whether or not it comports with reality. But it was clear they believed it. The story is told of uh, Frank, uh, Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers. Apparently, he loved to hear the 18th century evangelist George Whitfield preach. He loved to hear Whitfield preach, which is interesting because Ben Franklin was by no means a believer, a follower of Jesus. And apparently one time somebody said to him, uh, standing there listening to George Whitfield preach, said, why, why do you do this? You don't believe what he says. And Benjamin Franklin said, no, I don't, but he does. So what these men had to say did not ring like a fairy tale. It's clear they believed it. And secondly, what they believed was clear. What they had to say was a precise, not wandering, sensible, not unintelligible, discernible, not vague, verbal witness to the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's hard to imagine they went down bunny trails or got stuck on non-essentials. Let me begin my conclusion with telling you what I'm pretty sure that it, what it is that they did not say. They did not say, religion is a private matter, I don't talk about it. Of course, they wouldn't be there doing this and getting the stuffing beat out of them if they thought it was a private matter. They're talking about it. And secondly, they didn't say this. Jesus is true for you, but I have my truth. Now, that's what we call religious relativism. Religious relativism. Religious relativism is essentially a two-sided coin. On one side is the sentiment, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And on the other side is the sentiment, no one has a corner on the truth. All religions are basically true. So let's take the light of the Bible and shine it on that coin. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Well, who decided that? You know, it's possible to be sincerely wrong. If you go to the medicine cabinet in the middle of the night, you grab that bottle of ibuprofen, you've grabbed it 10,000 times before, you know the shape of it, you put that ibuprofen pill in your mouth, you're convinced, you're convinced, you sincerely believe this is what's going to sol solve my headache, and unbeknownst to you, I put cyanide in it, you're dead. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. Incidentally, come down to the airport this afternoon. I'm going to hop in a 757. You're welcome to get on board. And as you take your seat, I'm going to say this. Hi, this is your Captain Mike speaking. I have never flown a plane. I don't know the first thing about flying planes. But I'm going to fly to Hawaii. Are you going to stay on board? I sincerely know how to fly this plane. You would get off that thing in a second. Oh, you need open heart surgery. Come down to Surgeon Mike. I know nothing about medicine. I have never had a scalpel in my hand. Would you like me, as sincere as I am, to do your heart surgery? No, nobody lives this way, beloved. In reality, nobody lives this way. I could sincerely tell you I am a tree. Identify as a tree today. I could believe that with all my heart. It does not make it the facts. Right, that's the one side of the coin. The other side of the coin. Have I dispelled that sufficiently for you? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That is a crock. <sighs> to put it nicely. I don't feel strongly about that. The other side of the coin, let's shine some biblical light on. There's no such thing as truth. All religions are equally valid. 
again, we'd ask, well, who decided that? And have you actually studied the world religions? They're in conflict with each other in terms of epistemology, metaphysics, and all kinds. That's just not even factually near the truth. But just a second. You make the statement there are no religions that have a corner on the truth. Do you realize, friend, in order to make that statement, you're standing on a corner making a truth about all religions. It's a self-refuting sentiment. Do you see that? Do you see how that's a self-refuting sentiment? There are no absolutes is itself an absolute. Therefore, it makes no sense whatsoever. All right, we're dipping into a little apologetics here. I'll finish the sermon if I've confused you. That's not the message that, according to Acts 17, turned the world upside down. When the, when the people in Thessalonica were persecuting these believers, these men have come here who turned the world upside down. Those messages don't turn the world upside down. What turns the world upside down? Well, I'm not going to be able to spend any time on it. I'm sorry, but it's verses 9 and 10. Look at verses 9 and 10. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God. Here's the message. You must turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the message, the death, the resurrection, what it requires of all human beings to repent and turn and give themselves to God and forsake all the things that they live for. I have two sermons on these two verses. I obviously don't have time to preach them this summer. That's the message that turned the world upside down. Christ crucified. Christ is alive. And that's what you believe, beloved. That's what has gripped you, beloved. That's what makes this church so stunningly glorious in the eyes of Jesus, your shepherd. Let me pray for you. Lord, You've turned us from idols to serve you. You've conquered the grave, having put away our sin and guilt and condemnation. You brought us into life with yourself by your grace, according to your mercy, out of your boundless compassion, kindness, patience, and goodness. We are trophies of your grace. Thank you for the work you've done in my brothers and sisters to make Redeemer a lush garden. May she continue to bear fruit for the glory of Jesus. Amen.